Welcome to the Infinite Women Podcast. I'm your host, Alison Tyra, and today I'm joined by Syro behavioral scientist Dr. Emily Brindle, who uses her understanding of human behavior to help people investigate and promote healthy lifestyles. We'll dig more into her own work later, but first, Dr. Brindle wanted to tell us about philosopher and psychologist Dr. Mary Witten Culkins. I uh, got asked to do to join and talk about uh, a significant female scientist. And uh, to be honest, I was I couldn't think of any in psychology, which I thought was a bit sad. And I reflected and I thought, oh, I'm pretty sure when we did the developmental work, uh, there was some women in that, like around kids' growth. And I thought, I don't want to do that. It's too predictable. So went to Google and uh, Mary Colkins came up. Uh, and she was, uh, the reason I thought she looked interesting was because she was the, uh, from the oldest time frame. So I thought, oh, well, she looks like the beginning. And I'm always interested in the start. So, yeah, so I thought, look, I'll go for her. And the more and more I looked, the more fascinated I got. So I really hope that I can do some justice by by, by sharing her story with everyone. So she's from America. Um, she was born in 1863, so quite a while ago. Uh, and she was has been described as the mother of psychology. So she was on the ground with many other academics, right at sort of what what we could call the birth of psychology in America. So uh, in the late 1800s, psychology was an emerging discipline coming from sort of philosophy. Uh, German Germany got out the blocks early. So there was already a lab in, in Germany that was teaching psychology, but America was kind of just setting up their, their knowledge in that space. And that centered mainly around William James. And he had a, a lab in Harvard. So yeah, that's kind of where where my journey started. And um, Mary's journey actually started long before psychology uh, existed. She came from a very progressive family. Her dad was a Presbyterian minister and by all reports, he wanted equally his daughters to achieve what his sons achieved. Um, didn't want barriers of society to prevent them from being intelligent uh, thinkers, really. Like he valued knowledge uh, quite strongly. So he pushed his daughters through school. And when I say pushed, I mean like he pushed others to let them go through school, you know, made sure he opened lots of doors. Um, and they went over to Europe as well. And she studied Greek over there. So... Um, and that's actually what gave her a bit of an entry point into what we now know as academia. Um, she met some people over in Europe and, and saw that some there were some women working in, in that field. Uh, she learned a lot about uh, Greek history and Greek philosophy and Greek language. And then when she turned to America, she began teaching Greek. So that was kind of where she started her career. Uh, so she was teaching Greek at Wellesley College. Uh, and then they sort of said, oh, let's let's do a bit more. And that's when she reached out to to William James uh, and, and sort of started studying him under him in Harvard. Um, but I make it sound a lot easier than it than it was. Uh, they they basically, because she was already teaching, um, they they sort of justified her attendance at Harvard as you know, I guess what we'd now call is professional development. Um, and they said, you know, we're not, you're not really allowed on campus because you're a woman. 
and at that time Harvard was only men. Uh, but you, you might be able to just sit in and listen, not be part of the course. Um, and that was only after multiple people had rallied around her, so her father um, and a couple of the, the professors at Harvard had written and sort of justified her presence because, you know, obviously women are very distracting. Um, so, she, you know, just the presence was quite dangerous in, in, in 1900. Uh, the really nice fact is when she, so she got there and she was allowed to sort of watch uh, as, because, you know, psychology wasn't a thing, right? Like you need to sort of think about it in, in context. Uh, as she sort of got through the semester, she was the only one left. Uh, all the guys dropped out. Uh, so it was just her, her and William James, which I think is amazing. So like, like you look at the relationship that they shared throughout their careers and there's just such a mutual respect for each other's ideas and, and growth of ideas, like reciprocal, like he, so his, his big book is an introduction to psychology. He's got like 59,000 citations for one edition, right? So this guy is like a big person in psychology, very widely regarded still to this day. I, I even cited him in one of my undergrad papers, I'm sure. So, you know, he's, he's a big, he's a big name. And just he was happy to interrupt to... real quick, um, yeah. for any non-academics, when you say 59,000 citations, that refers to the number of times other people have cited his work in their work. And so a high citation level usually indicates how influential someone is. And so yes, definitely. That, that definitely. number is insane. <laughs> and that, that's, pub, like, that's published citations, right? So that doesn't count Emily Brindle's 2000 undergrad paper to get assessed you know this is like actual proper other people have written papers that have gone through and been accepted and published that's that includes that level so I mean to be sad I think I read a I read an article about your average paper modern day paper will have like four or less citations yeah so 59,000 is like I mean, he's had like a hundred and years or so to get that many. So there wasn't a lot of competition yeah, well, at the time. Well, this is where, you know, things get interesting, right? So he's had a hundred years, but so has old Mary. Uh, and guess what her number one, like citations, her number one paper is in, in numbers. I'm afraid to ask. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I'll give you a range. Guess a range. What range do you think it would be? And if you know, like, four is, like, pretty 200. <sighs> that's her, that's her, right? Uh, so, yeah, that's, and that was on Dream. So um, that was sort of like her first work that she did with him and another person called Sanford. Um, that She started quantifying her dreams uh, to look, at this time and, and always throughout her career, she's very interested in self uh, and consciousness. So when we think today about psychology, we, we have lots of domains, right? And we break it into like personality would be one. And we've got cognition, which is where all the brain memory thinking sort of stuff fits. And then you've got the sort of more, I guess I'm going to say soft, but I think I would be shot down by by Mary if she heard that but the, the sort of I guess less tangible concepts you know where they're 
they are more guided by philosophy and and inductive thinking. So looking inwards first and deriving ideas from from your own experience. Um, so that's the that's the sort of self area. But she actually started in what now we'd call cogn cognition and and brain health, uh, which is you know today. Good luck finding someone that has interests in both cogn cognitive science and self, because we just we've made you know two ends of a spectrum here, and um, we tend to work fairly insular within our domain. Whereas she started off looking at dreams in a very quantitative way. Uh, her and her colleague woke themselves up regularly throughout the evening, um, set an alarm clock. I don't know what alarm clocks look like in 1900. I was going to look that up. I'm quite curious, actually. Um, and then use candlelight uh, to write down the exact dream they were having as it got interrupted. Uh, and they looked at, you know, the content and the vividness of the dream and, and the feelings. And they sort of coded it all out in a very quantitative way, which today is, you know, one of our strengths in that we we're proud of in psychology, the ability to sort of take experience and, and quantify, which means put a number against it and compare it. Um, so she did that and her paper on that is just, it's hilarious. Like, I love it. It's like, I wish in some ways we could write papers like that. Back then in like the early 1900s, it's very much a personal narrative of your process. So it was like, at the moment, like in psychology, it's very cold very formulaic. So, you know, we don't write I, never allowed to put yourself in there. Uh, and you have to sort of follow a very, it's just a, you know, a formula essentially, you know, here's your intro, here's your method. And, and it gets very samey, whereas the papers back then were very much like, oh, I did this and then I did that. And then I discovered this and, and, you know, and yet she still presented it with a table and, and, you know, it's still sort of quantitative, just in a very, much more personal way. And to the point, my favorite part of the paper is she, and the, the language is just so much fancier sounding as well. I find when I read things from the 1900s, uh, she describes her pencil breaking. So she's got these two two or three sentences and it's, and it's basically about the uh, challenges with the method of recalling dreams, right? So it's pretty hard to recall dreams, which is why they interrupted their sleep cycle. But then to, to sort of have the cognitive function, like the awareness to be able to write down what you've just dreamed about, you kind of have to wake up. And she was saying, you know, once you've waked up sometimes, or woken up, sometimes those dreams are gone. And so they were trying to do it like immediately. And, and she, yeah, she describes this instance where uh, she woke up in the morning feeling like she'd done her diligent, you know, research job, writing down her dream, happy, went to sleep happy and then found out her pencil would, had no tip on it oh, and no. she just scribbled nothingness and this thing that she thought was so great at the time, there was actually nothing. And I just thought, oh my gosh, that is just such a cool little anecdote, you know, and it's just like some, that sort of idiosyncrasy is just not in modern modern research, you know, like it's like, don't waste my publication space with your, with your story. You know, people are like, what's the relevance of this? Uh, but for me, I was like, that's just really cool. It was just a cool little, and it was quite humorous, I thought. Like, I don't know if, if anyone else thinks it's funny. But yeah, so she started out in memory, um, sorry, in dreams. And then, um, and that was kind of just something she did 
I guess what in what we'd sort of call undergrad now, uh, you know, when she was learning initially under under James, and then she sort of started to undertake a more structured program that would would sort of form more of a PhD, uh, and that work was around uh, memory and 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 what we now call paired association. So she was very interested in in memory, and again, that's very very heavily in the area of cognition. Uh, and how people store information, how people recall information, how people forget information. Uh, and, re and her method that she used was actually quite groundbreaking at that time. So basically she made experiments to test different ideas, which is the core of all science. Uh, and the way that she did it around memory was uh, quite groundbreaking in that, in that day. Um, her primary observation, like if you if you go to the internet, you'll be told that was her one of her greatest contributions to the field. She came out with a paired associates method, um, and and the primary finding of that was it, the more you see things, the more like you are to remember it. You know, yeah, science isn't always exciting, um, but she also did find um, that if you pair uh, certain things with other things you do have an improved recall. So uh, it's pretty common knowledge now, um, but you know, like if you put a vivid color with a number and then you show the vivid color, people are more likely to recall that number. Um, so, you know, it's pretty early to be sort of making these observations. And one of the things that you don't immediately find around this method was she also started noticing a lot of other sort of things about memory such as, what we now know as primacy effect. Uh, so, you know, I, I guess I should probably tell you what a, what a memory task is like, because not everyone might have had the joy of, of undertaking them, especially if they haven't done undergrad psych. But I guess most memory tasks are like, here's a list of things, can you recall it, right? I guess that would be your basic short-term memory test. Uh, then there's like, then it gets fun from there. So there might be a delay. So they might show you a list then get you to go off and do something else for half an hour and then come back and then ask you the same. Sometimes those lists of words, sometimes they're numbers, sometimes they're objects, like they'll vary what it is. Um, and then there's also really fun things where they sort of challenge uh, your attention and memory at the same time. So like the Stroop test is a classic, which some people would be familiar with. You know, you start saying words that are color words, but in the wrong color and you start really messing with the way people are like storing information. Um, so that's kind of where we've got to with a lot of these these tests. And I've, you know, I've done them with participants and I've done them myself so many times. Um, but you know, she was kind of there thinking about it, making these methods, which is which is pretty cool. And in regard to the primacy effect, everyone that's done uh, undergrad psych would would know what that is. It's like one of the go-to things in the area of memory. And it's essentially, you always remember the first thing. So you get this list of like 40 things. You tend to always remember the first thing and the last thing. Uh, and the middle is always a bit vague and lost. So, And the last yeah, thing, they, that's um, recency effect. It's primacy and recency. Yeah, re yeah that's and it. They're the two. one side class. <laughs> yeah, that's it. See, everyone, everyone knows that. And there's actually one person um, who took uh, Mary's results and kind of modernized them and represented them in a paper in like 93 or something. Um, he said, he reckons he's, she's the first person to, to use the term primacy. 
So, you know, she did, she had great ideas and she was doing some pretty cutting edge stuff. And I think um, to the point where William James then added a footnote to his very famous introduction to psych book that's, that cited her work. So, you know, she was like changing his thinking as well, which I think that's regardless of anything else, like for you to have your mentor cite your own work, it's a pretty big buzz. Um, I think in any field, right? Like it's kind of that that moment that you really want. So, so yeah, she did that. And then um, ultimately Harvard denied her, her PhD, which wasn't uncommon, unfortunately. It wasn't a different experience of many other people at that time. Uh, and then she went back to work at Wellesley uh, and taught there for the next 40 years and set up a, a, a lab in psychology of her own. And, and pushed through two to 300 students, I think, uh, and then passed that lab on to another person that then also became, uh, you know, fairly known in, in psychology, Eleanor Gamble. So um, yeah, and Eleanor, and another woman, but also she was, I think, legally blind. So she also, there's <laughs> just lots of challenges there too. So within a year of retiring, died, so. She was looking forward by all reports to spending her retirement with her mum. She was still living at home throughout her whole her whole life. She lived with her parents. Uh, and she was looking forward to just, yeah, chilling out with her mum and getting closer to her mum. And then yeah, just died. So she didn't she didn't uh, get a big retirement there, but in nineteen thirty that was. So and so that was in 1930. She'd set up the psychology lab at Wellesley in 1891. So she did have quite a long career. Yeah, 40 years, 40 years of teaching. So, and what I found really disappointing was when I was actually, so I can talk to you about the men that influenced her career, right? Very clearly documented. And I was like, but who did she influence, right? Like for me, it's like, where's your legacy, right? And and part of your legacy is is who you influence. Good luck. Good well, luck finding anyone that says <laughs> this, per, like Mary Culkins um, taught me and I'm great in my career. Uh, and I don't, you know, some of these things are just historic disadvantage and bias, like the Harvard thing. Uh, and I think you know, she's there's actually her own words are published a lot around her experience with Harvard. So she did write an autobiography in, in 1930, which is the funniest autobiography I've ever read. Because when I hear autobiography, I think it's going to be a story about you, right? Like, surely that's what it means. I didn't study Latin, but surely that means a story about me. Uh, she basically just said, spends the first half of it talking about her career. And then the second half as a pitch for why the self is so important in psychology, which I think is hilarious because it just shows you like how passionate she was about, you know, the place she'd arrived at after all this experience and all these papers and thinking and teaching, she was still pushing very clearly that we should be thinking of the self as the foundation of all psychology. You know, we need to really, because, at that time, like as you move sort of into the 30s and particularly in the 50s in psychology, the behaviorists were coming in and the behaviorists are like hardcore, 
quantify where everything is a number, everything, you know, that it was it was a big movement and you know it essentially said we're all molecules and molecules can be predicted and manipulated. It's it's funny because to me it echoes of the current world that I live in in terms of uh, big data and data science and, and algorithms and AI. Like it's like, well, everything's a number. You know, we're going to be able to quantify what a thought looks like in the human brain. So what relevance is your thoughts you know, in psychology? Where's the relevance of psychology if we're going to be able to map thoughts and tell you what you're thinking? Uh, so I, I do see, you know, parallels between that kind of 1930s behaviorism coming in and threatening the, the philosophy side of psychology. And to be honest, I think they won because, you know, the way I learned psychology, it's it's and partly it's because it's that political push for being a science because we're, you know, I think psychology is always a bit threatened that we're going to be told we're not a proper science. So we, we put a lot of effort into making sure we do things rigorously and we put numbers on things and we do lots of stats like psych people. Are, if you ever need stats help, if you ever need statistics advice, you psych people are the people you want around you. But I feel like that kind of came at the cost of some of the more deep philosophical questions. And and I think, you know, Mary sort of held both of those equally. You know, whereas I didn't I didn't even learn philosophy in undergrad. I did not. Like I know nothing about I have a doctor of philosophy, right? But I couldn't I couldn't tell you much about the isms at all. Whereas I think, you know, then it was about thinking about who you are and the depths and and all those things that we just we've kind of lost as a discipline and sort of push that to other disciplines you know like that's social science or that's philosophy if you want to do that you've got to go do that in that degree um whereas yeah psychology is more about the quantifying and and we have theory like don't get me wrong there's like there is thinking but i guess it's it's deductive right like i think if you think about you know, lots of people talk to you about reasoning and so that's like the way you think about things. So, you know, you can have inductive or deductive reasoning and deductive is for me like easier. You observe events and you go, okay, well, I saw this. If I do this as like, if I make this button red, someone pushes it more if I make it green, right? Like you can really quantify it to its simplest behavioral level. Whereas inductive's like, Let's start with an idea. Let's really think about this. Let's let's look at our own experience. Let's build up to something and then test it, which is kind of what Mary did with her with her dreams. You know, like let's write it down and and think about it. Also with her dreams, um, you know, when people think about dreams, uh, most people go straight to Freud, who came along a bit later, which you know not the biggest fan of, of psycho <laughs> psychoanalysis i think it's really um different and as a modern person i find it really hard to relate to some of the concepts and thinking in it but essentially once freud started publishing on dreams uh the idea which she had suggested that dreams was kind of just processing the stuff and people and, and you knew uh 
he came along and was like, they've got deeper meaning, they're your real desires, you've got to look into them, you know. And he, he sort of put this this lens on dreams as some amazing secret world of what you actually want. That lasted for 50 years or so. And it wasn't, it, it's like I read a paper in, published in 2012 and essentially they said, you know what, Mary Culkins was probably right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, over a hundred years ago when she said her, you know, dreams are just basically sort of a bit of junk processing people and places out of order in your brain. Uh, yeah, that, that probably wasn't too far off the mark. It's funny how you just, the knowledge just gets so derailed, you know, like it's, it's, it's hard because, you know, you think, oh, if, if maybe she'd been a bit more respected and more people read at work, maybe we could be in a different place right now. Ironically, Freud did cite her dream work in his own work. And it is one of those things where it's like, why, why did he get all the attention? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And like, you know, funnily, when I did look up female site, so his daughter was, was one of the prominent ones. So she did you know, continue her father's legacy. And I must admit, upon reflection, I do remember hearing about her in undergrad. So she probably was the only uh, female psych that I, I we did did come across. Uh, although her name escapes me now. Honestly? Yeah, I was going to say Anna. So yeah, that that's good enough <laughs> for me. It's, I ref, I've tried to reflect on her experience, I guess, as a woman, as a woman myself. Um, and, and to be honest, it's not something I've, I try to get too bogged down in. Like, I think partly because I've just had the privilege of not particularly feeling like a woman in, in my education. Do you know what I mean? Like I was, I haven't missed, I felt like I haven't missed out on opportunities and things because of the time that I've come through. Uh, so it's not something I reflect on a lot, but my mom, uh, very, very, you know, at this, in the seventies, very passionate for women and women's rights and the, and she's always reminding me of things that, you know, perhaps that are unfair. And I had a I had a good chat with her about this because, you know, I'll tell you in a minute, but there's there are things here that have actually really got under my skin in terms of of women and, and, and you know, women's rights and and ultimately, you know, the impacts that they have on society, particularly through institutions. But my mum was like, you know, in the 70s, we were fighting for women to be equal and yeah, my mum had to quit the education. Well, she didn't have to. She was very heavily suggested to quit the education department um, to have kids because you're not coming back. And this was in the 80s, you know, when it's not the 60s. Uh, you're not coming back. And she did go back, but she went back with, like, way inferior superannuation package because, you know, dad sticked it, stuck it out and he he's on the old pension. So, you know, having kids cost her a huge career gap obviously but then also like her pension essentially because she was told don't do this so you know she did experience that sort of institutional you know disadvantage for her gender so but she's she sort of says you know she looks at me now obviously I've done not too bad I've got a PhD I'm working full-time for a national government agency but you know I'm trying to raise kids at the same time and she's like, you know, it's great that you can do all these things, but now you've got to do everything. And the whole idea of what we push for 
when we were pushing for all these women rights, it wasn't just for women to get paid the same. It was for to share roles and share responsibilities. Not this world where, okay, well, you work, but you've got to work the same the same style as a man. And then you've also got to be a mum in your spare time. She was like, the dream was to have men having more parental responsibilities, you know? So she feels like, I guess, when I talked to her about this, you know, she said, it's like, you know, women have the access, but but ultimately everything's the same, you know, like the way society is and what we value and what a successful career looks like. It's all the same. And when I look at Mary Culkins, who reflected upon, you know, her experience, she's like, she's just got such a good vibe on it because she, she basically, and there's, there's quotes out there that you can find to get her actual wording, but she basically says, you know, she's got regret for the actions of the corporation with a capital C. So, you know, like basically institutions that have disadvantaged her. But at the end of the day, she was just happy to learn. You know, that was it. Like I got to hang out with all these very knowledgeable people and discover things, right? And that for her was such a victory because her interest wasn't in having a career. It wasn't in being glorified. It was ultimately in knowledge. Like she she was like a knowledge nerd. She just wanted to know stuff. She wanted to contribute. She wanted to move knowledge forward. And partly that was a passion given to her from her dad, from all reports. Uh, and I mean, his actions also suggest that. And I guess that's the same for me. Like my parents, both teachers, they both gave me that passion for education. The difference is they didn't have to open doors for me uh, to, to do that. Um, but then, because <laughs> I'm a researcher, right, I started digging around in this, this why didn't she get her PhD? And there's the short answer, which is, you know, obviously she wasn't actually a student, so Harvard didn't recognise her and her achievements. But there was a group of professors that all gathered around and assessed her, which was a bit rogue, not approved. They were like, mm, we're going to risk this. We got to get, they all got together. They gave her a complete PhD examination. William James said she was basically one of the most exceptional students he'd ever had um, and, and they wrote a letter to Harvard saying we did this which you know pretty risky like good on them like Harvard fired multiple people for having progressive views so it wasn't just if you're a bit outside of the scope it was also if you supported those people you're at risk uh, and and Harvard essentially just said noted <laughs> Now, you know, I, like this. I, I do want to say she was awarded an honorary a doctor of letters in 1909 from the University of Columbia and a doctorate of laws in 1910 from Smith College. So she did get multiple doctorates, just not the one that she earned at Harvard. <laughs> yeah, so Radcliffe offered her, so back when she was still alive, um, Harvard set up a special women's college called Radcliffe. Uh, and Radcliffe were like, hey, you know, you're pretty awesome. We'd like to give you PhD. And, and she essentially said, I completely respect you and I respect the people you're giving PhDs to. But if you do this, there's no pressure on Harvard to change. Right? And she, she didn't accept it. So she, she had her own opportunity 
to accept a PhD. And she said, nah, you know what? So she didn't rally, like she wasn't out there rallying and putting up together, you know, change org petitions or anything, but she, she took a stand and, and she was very firm on it. Well, she actually, she was a suffragist and a member of the American Civil Liberties Union and a pacifist. So she was an activist, but she may have decided that there's only so much she's willing to rock the boat in academia, sort of a uh, don't poop where you live sort of <laughs> Very much. Yes, yes. I mean, that's the polite version to what I know. Um, yeah, in her autobiography, she definitely... Um, she says, and it's not it's not about issues like with the corporation. It's, it's more around academic issues, right? So as an academic, and and feel free to ask me why you would choose this career because I ask it myself often. You spend your whole time essentially trying to justify why you believe something and having other people shoot you down, right? So and and depending on how cutting edge your ideas are, the more heat you get, right? So obviously she was very passionate about self in a time when behaviorists were coming through. And so she coughed a lot of fire, right? And generally, you know, probably being a woman also got some people's backs up in general, because let's face it, there's people like that in the community to this day. Um, and, and, you know, she says in her autobiography, I've had so many things that I could keep fighting for and it do, I, I've just got over it. You know what I mean? Like, got to pick your battles more or less is what I read uh, through her very nice wording um, she just you know you pick your battles and her battle was self and definitely establishing self as as essential part of psychology um, and that is kind of so she did get to be the president this is the other funny thing right so you can't have a PhD but in 1905 she's the president of the American Psychological Association so there she is in charge of everyone you know like representing everyone and she did use that forum to really push her herself ideas around and she i think she was voted like number 12 most influential psychologist maybe in america i don't know i think there was some other layer of um at that time by her peers so not by like a google poll because you know <laughs> times were different back then by actual people that knew what she did it wasn't a popularity contest yeah. So, you know, she was very well respected. So that was in 1903. Ten American psychologists were asked to rank their colleagues in order of merit. And yes, yeah, she ranked 12th. And that was two years before she became the first woman president of the American Psychological Association. And incidentally, she was also the first woman to be president of the American Philosophical Association in 1918. And to me, it's like not only are you the president of an association, which is an achievement, but you got two and they're two like completely different disciplines from what we have these days, you know, like she wasn't afraid to, to do a bit of everything because I think ultimately she backed her knowledge, you know, so despite the many challenges that, and, and you know, there's a, there's a story online about her trying to get into the dining hall with her male colleagues at Harvard and oh man, somebody's boat got rocked big that day, you know, like, they couldn't figure out how to get her to have lunch with them. It's pretty sad that the things, the challenges, and it was like, well, you're not allowed in here because you're a woman. And they're like, oh, we'll go to the women's hall then. And they're like, well, you couldn't have that many men in the women's hall because who knows what might happen. Uh, yeah, it's just, just such a small thing. 
and you just think that's the one that's online, right? So how much other things were there? But I guess she just was focused on the prize. She had to own the prize. And 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 ultimately the prize was actually having an impact and getting her ideas and her thoughts out there. And sadly, you know, in terms of undergrad, we're not being taught. We're not being taught her ideas. Um, you know, self-psychology is not really a big thing. Like I don't remember a unit on it. I guess it's kind of morphed a bit into personality as well. Um, personality is is much more around the description of different types of people to me, uh, whereas self is more about the relationship that you have inside of you with whatever it is that you are. Um, so, I mean, the father of personality, and I use that term loosely because now who knows what could be behind that, um, Gordon Allport, he, this this was the bit that I guess made me most upset about um, her legacy. He wrote a book in 1937, which was his foundational piece about personality, highly cited. Um, in the first edition, he gives lots of uh, acknowledgement to her and her ideas around self. So, you know, lots of lots of um, footnotes and, and citations, Mary Colgan's and her work. By the third edition, she's wiped out of it. There's not, nothing. And I'm like, what happened there? Do you know what I mean? Like, maybe just thought, like, he found better references. Like, I guess, depending on how you want, what lens you want to apply to it, you could make a case either side, right? But, yeah, I mean... Yeah, it's pretty sad. So she was there and she was, and same with Freud, right? Like she's there influencing the thinking of these people, but then it's either forgotten or just completely over, overwhelmed by what those people went on to get to get recognised. Um, and so look, I did some investigating with Harvard and I was like, went to their website and they've got a write-up about how fantastic Mary Culkins is. I thought, oh, that's cool. And in their write-up, they have a citation of a person called uh, Karen Boatwright, and she's written a whole case for why Mary Culkins should be awarded a posthumous PhD, right? She's from Kalamazoo, I think, which I just wanted to say. Um, it's America. <laughs> got some cool places. Um, yeah, so she's, wrote this, she's written this whole thing, and they cite it on their website. And I thought, that's really weird. Like, why have they cited evidence how good this woman is and a request to, to give her a PhD? Surely they've given her a PhD. You couldn't be that arrogant, right? Or they just said, cite- noted. Mm, wow. History does not change at great speed it over there. So I contacted the head of the psych department at Harvard. Because, you know, I just don't care. I was just like, Hi. I'm in Australia. Um, and I was like, is it true? Like, surely you guys gave her a PhD. And he wrote back to me and said, no, no, we keep trying, but Harvard won't do it. And I was like, my gosh, like, and, you know, I'm a scientist, right? So I try not to filter too much through my personal lens. And I'm like, well, either they've got a real problem with her or there's like something else going on. And I said, well, why not? And and essentially now Harvard's sort of come down and said, we just don't, we will not award any PhDs posthumously. Right? I guess it's a bit of a thread that they don't want to pull at because it's not just women 
like this is what happened. I pulled out the thread and this is where things started to go a bit funky for me. It was gay men. It was like anyone of African descent that managed to get through uni sure did not get recognised with their study. So, so there's lots of people that, that were never recognised with their PhD. Um, and, and the first um, feedback, so this, this um, boat ride, they sort of did a project to really rally against Harvard and say, come on, give this woman a PhD, just recognise her, what have you got to lose? And that sort of happened in the 2000s. And the first response they got was actually, well, we don't have any evidence she completed the requirements of the degree. I'm like, oh my God, how, how is this not enraging, right? Like I said, I try not, like I don't see myself as particularly like a pusher of women's rights. And I try not to get too political about anything, but how can I not be enraged by this fact, right? And so that's when they wrote this whole, essay about her achievements they collated it all and they represented it to the president of harvard and said look you know she's done it all man there's the papers there's the examination record um the only thing she didn't do was spend two years living on campus because she was sure wasn't allowed to sleep near a man you know like oh god we can't even eat dinner together imagine if we had shared like our rooms were within like two blocks of each other. So, you know, she couldn't meet that requirement. And and that was the only, like the only bit she didn't read. And they never heard back from Harvard at all uh, once they sort of put together this thing. But then Harvard's gone and cited this case for how great Mary Culkins was. And I'm like, this just blows my mind. Like it really does. I'm just like, Women aside, like, let's not make this a women's issue. Let's just make this, like, generally, like, recognition of people issue. Oh, my God, how can you not? And then, you know, at the same time, how many honorary degrees are awarded every year? Do you know, like, Tom Hanks has a Harvard degree. So, you know, like, it's like, I don't know, it's just so inconsistent for me. I just, like, it really makes me feel upset because there's a press release in in the, um, Harvard newspaper because they cop a lot of flack for this like it's not news that you know lots of people have been pushing so Mary Culkins herself has had multiple campaigns where people have rallied around her ranging from I think there was one in like 1930 to one in 2018 right so there's been lots of efforts lots of different people that have tried time and time again and just got told no but there's also been groups. So there was um, some gay men that got kicked out of Harvard. Uh, and there's been the same efforts, you know, around this this group. Uh, and, and in this newspaper article about that group, uh, Harvard basically say, well, you know, it's just history. You just learn from it and go forward. You know, you, you, can't, you can't change what's happened. You just got to learn, learn and go forward. And that's kind of now, I guess, their, their official position on, posthumous degrees like obviously I didn't ask anyone at Harvard what their official position is but that article was published in 2010 and they still haven't recognized it uh so you know I think they just it's just a flat no for her and many many others um I don't think in my lifetime I'm going to see them them change their process but I was a bit triggered by it so I did dig a bit further because I was like I was reflecting you know well, you know, we do need to learn from history. 
we can't change history. And yeah, she doesn't have any um, direct relatives. So there's no one person that's going to benefit. Like, obviously, it benefits the community to see that people who have achieved get recognised for achievements. There's no sort of individual person that needs that to happen. But we do need to learn as a society, right? Totally on board. So again, being a researcher, I went to the Department of Psych. I counted up the number of professors that were men and women. And I thought, well, I wonder what the proportion is here. <laughs> like I dug, because I just can't help myself. Like it's my natural instinct. 40% uh, women professors in the psych department. And I thought, oh, yeah, it doesn't seem too bad. But what can I compare this to? So I went to Wellesley College where Mary Colkins had set up her lab. I thought, well, there's a good comparison. They were at the forefront of including women uh, in, in research and, and idea generation. 70% women who are professors in the psych department there, right? But I do think Wellesley yeah. is an all-female college even to this day. Yeah, so they, but they've still got men teaching, right? So they've got 70% women as professors. And I thought, but, you know, how do I need something better than this? Like, so then I went to the people, the American Psychological Association, and I was like, okay, well, how many women versus men graduated from a doctorate in 2005, assuming that you need 15 years or so to kind of get up the ranks? 70%. I was like, are you kidding me? How could that possibly be? 70% is exactly what is represented in the teaching department. And then Harvard's 40%. So I'm like, have we learned? Right? Like, as an institution, you know, we're a government agency and we're very focused on our metrics and making sure We've got like diversity represented across multiple domains and we're always checking our numbers. And it's a fine line because you, your critics will be like, well, you can't just put somebody in a role because of some feature of who they are. But ultimately, if you've got 70% of people coming out of a degree who are equally qualified that happen to be women, when you look at your metrics of like how diverse your organization is surely that's your bar right like surely that so if you wanted it to be more diverse you might only have you know you might have 70 percent women you might have maybe less women in some ways because women are the dominant thing to be more diverse you might have to include men but we're we're in opposite world we're completely opposite to that it's just it blows my mind so i just like it didn't fill me with hope I guess, <laughs> you know, like here I am, I'm like 125 years in the future. Yeah, I've got a, I've got a PhD, but how far have we come here? Mm. Like I just, I don't know. I don't want to go too crazy. I don't want to go too deep. I can't help it. I should have studied philosophy so I could articulate my ideas better. Well, let's let's switch gears. I am curious to talk a bit about your own work um, and because I've worked in marketing for most of my career. So I'm really intrigued that from what I understand, your primary focus is on how we can use psychology to influence human behavior, um, ideally using those powers for good. No, no, I'm very passionate about ideas, I guess. And I like to talk more about the concepts than, than the wheel turning. 
Um, but like, much like Mary, I actually have quite a diverse pot of work that, I, that I'm in. And I think partly that's the appeal of psychology to me in hindsight. When I was like 17 and starting uni, I don't think I could have told you why I picked psychology. Um, but in hindsight, I think, you know, it's very, um, it's got lots going on. You can work, like I said, you can work in memory. You can look, and I've done that. So I've done trials with kids looking at how different breakfasts impacts their memory. Um, you can look at personality. I've done that. You know, I've tried to make my own little tool to quantify different diet types. So, you know, when you when you start a diet, what, what do you like? You know, what diet type do you fit? Um, and then I guess more recently, I'm sort of like, I want to do something. And maybe this is just like something that happens at a certain point in your career where you think, you know, and I want to see, I want to see something a bit more tangible uh, rather than a tool or, or some knowledge in a paper. I want to, I want to help people be better, right? Like I want to, and for me, like I'm, I'm pretty narrow in my thinking because I guess I don't want to take people who are not interested and help them be better. Like I'm kind of like, oh, that might be a bit too hard. But <laughs> there's so many people out there that do want to be better, right? They want to live better lives. They want to be healthier. They want to be fitter. You know, they want to feel better. And they don't know how to do it. And there's just so many barriers and it's just so hard. Like, man, I've done radio interviews and I've had a guy say to me, but well, weight loss is easy, right? Like we know what we need to do. Like literally that's what, I'm like, oh my God. Like I basically just stopped. The conversation went a bit more pointed from that point and ended <laughs> very quickly. But I was just like, this. anyone who's actually tried to, to eat differently would know it's not easy. As I said, I pulled him up straight then and there and the interview quickly shut down because <laughs> he saw that I was getting a bit fiery. <laughs> I think you see that with all kinds of privilege, like, oh, it's not that hard to get an education or it's not that hard <laughs> to eat better. And I feel like being in a privileged position, which I have a lot of privileges, but I think it makes it a lot easier for that person to assume that this is easy for me, therefore it's easy for everyone else because I don't recognize the barriers that other people are facing. They don't realize how Definitely. complex it is. Definitely. And I mean, I guess... To be honest, I'm like that with knowledge, right? Like to me, that's that's my privilege that I've I've been instowed. My family, not so much their family, my family, my direct my parents have valued knowledge. And so to me, it's like, of course you want to know things, right? And I find it really hard to understand other people that just don't even think about things. I'm like, partly it's envy as well, because I'm like, oh. Things would be a lot easier if I thought a lot less sometimes. But, you know, I just like, how do you not want to know more about these things? And that's like my privilege lens that I see. And, you know, I think as you get further in your career, you get more disconnected from those people and you just surround yourself with all these other PhDs, you know, and you just get in this little bubble of like all these people that use fancy words and fancy concepts and like shooting each other down. Like there's a lot of ego out there too, you know, and you just get used to it and, and you lose sight of why you're doing it. And, and so that for me is, I guess, how I, I see privilege in my own world. And I mean, my husband definitely comes from a different world than me. And often I like have him to kind of remind me 
you know, like, well, you know, there are different places in the world. Uh, and I guess, you know, being a woman, as much as I don't want to admit it, as, you know, I've progressed through my life and particularly when I got a husband, because like I'd always kind of just been single and never really saw you know, myself as a woman trying to do woman things. I was just Emily trying to do Emily things. Then I get a husband and then I could see really firsthand how his experience was different to my experience. I'd never really had to face that as an individual because I never really filtered through that lens because my parents, like I said, my mom, she went through the feminist. They didn't give me Barbies. They were very careful to make sure that I had a very sort of like, whatever you want to do, we're not going to force you down one path or the other. My sister loves makeup and clothes. I like Lego, right? You know, like I was allowed to be who I wanted to be. And so I didn't ever really have this hang up about that. Then I get this guy that's hanging around me all the time and I'm seeing the way he talks to people. I'm seeing the way people talk to him, you know, like oh, he, and then he sees that too. Like it wasn't just me because he was similar to me. Uh, and he's like, oh my God, really? That person just said that to you? Because he really <laughs> respects me and what I've achieved. Because, you know, he didn't come from a family that valued education and he fought through and eventually got an associate degree. Yeah, but it took a lot of work for him. He was working full time and, you know, like he worked so much harder to get a lower level of degree than I worked to get my PhD. So I respect him heaps for that, but he, he respects where I got to too. And so, you know, he can't believe the way sometimes people talk to me in the community because, I mean, I look pretty young firstly and I'm pretty cash. And so people just assume and, and then you have kids. Oh, my God, you layer. You just go down a layer. You walk around the street with a four-year-old and a five-year-old hanging off at you, tugging at various body parts that shouldn't be touched in public. And you go down. You go down a layer. People assume you know nothing you get talked to in a very specific way and because I work you know we have flexible work arrangements and I am fractional I'm out and about on a Wednesday morning with like my daughter who's who's not quite at reception yet so you know people like just assume oh you're just a stay-at-home mum you know nothing about the world I'm like no, you know what actually I'm fairly well respected you know I have international people talking to me about my ideas you know like I don't actually need you to care about me because I'm pretty got a pretty healthy ego but at the same time it's it's not nice to be to sort of just go about your life and be treated that way and yeah my husband like we had someone come out I had my own house he had his own house we had someone come out quote for veranda at my house and it was just me and the guy rocks up and he's like trying to talk me through these complicated concepts of you know putting up some posts and some and a roof because you know <laughs> whew, like might be a bit much for me. And then Brody rocked up, like my husband. He immediately just turned to him and continued the whole conversation with him. And I was like dead to him from that, mo that point on. And I was just like, uh, you know, this isn't his house. Like you just <laughs> lost a customer, mate. And I rang up his like employer and I was like, you're really going to work for that because, you know, you lost the customer purely because that guy was just so rude to me as a human being. You know, not even just as a woman, just as a human being, mate. Treat me like with some respect here. So, yeah, and the other thing that I think is funny <laughs> is that I ride motorbikes. People come to a house, they see see my motorbikes, right? And my husband actually, 
uh, had a stroke and his right side of his body doesn't work. So every time he meets someone, he go, they go to shake his hand, especially men, and he can't get his hand out because it doesn't work well. So straight off, every guy that he meets knows that he's disabled. <laughs> and yet they go out the back and they go, oh, hey, you, your motorbikes, mate? I'm like, dude, the guy can't even use one side of his body. And you know that. And yet he's more likely to be riding a motorbike than me. It's just nuts, right? And like I said, I was never really aware of it until, yeah, I, I had a point of reference, I guess. That's what science is all about, right? Like we got to find these points of reference, make our, make our comparisons and make our experiences. You know, there's, there's, I say current, but it's like 15 years old now, theory around you have resources you know you have so much resource and and you wear out we call it ego depletion in psych uh in the 80s i thought it was called willpower but you know <laughs> it, it's essentially the idea that cognitively and mentally you can only take so much on and then once that's run out you start to get grumpy you can't maintain new things you know so there's a lot of thinking around that now and and how we can use that to help people stay on track so freeing up some of the burden of, of learning new behaviors uh, in in ways that just make it simpler uh, for people but when it comes to eating yes that's a challenge I think I'm just going to spend the rest of my life trying to make that work because eating's just so complicated you know it's, you have to do it and I think unlike smoking or drinking or wearing sunscreen you know it's just like some one little thing that you do Eating, like, you have to do it three times a day or, or more or less, and you've got to navigate such a complicated environment. So, yeah, I think I'll be busy. Yeah. And there's so many factors when you're looking at, like, what all you're putting into your body, because it might be, oh, you, your iron is low, so you should eat more red meat. Oh, but your cholesterol is high, so you shouldn't eat any red meat. Like, pick one! Yeah, but then also like, oh, and I actually, you know, I really care about the environment. I've heard that red meat has a really big footprint. Is that true? Do you know what I mean? Like, but, oh, but then, you know, red meat's not so bad if you eat the right quantity. Like, it's just like impossible. Like, I don't care how smart you are. And, you know, maybe AI will solve the problem and tell us what's right. But my hopes are not high, you know, because those systems are made by people. And if we don't know what we're doing... I'm not confident that data is the solution to our problem. And I think we do need to go back to our roots and we do go to need to go back about thinking of people in ways that isn't purely number-based. There is a bit of philosophy for me that we need to navigate this data-rich world. Join us next time on the Infinite Women podcast. And remember, well-behaved women rarely make history.